Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! So, Roger. Yes? <laughs> the very first major question of 2023 that I have for you. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. I'm tingling with excitement. If you were to go on a murderous rampage, what type of animal mask would you wear? Oh, my God. Oh. Um, <laughs> I want to be something really obscure and something that doesn't technically strike fear in people's eyes. <laughs> So they're like, so they don't know how to respond to it. I'm trying to think of something that I can go with. There, there is this, there's this Australian animal, um, this little furry creature, and the name of this animal, it's called a quokka. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they've got these little faces. Is it the one with the huge eyes? It's got big old black eyes and a smiling face. Oh yeah, they are so cute. So I'd want to be something like along those lines because I think when people saw me at first, they'd be like, "Oh," and then they'd be like, "Oh," <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be prepared for the violence I was about to unleash upon them. How about you? Oh, you know, I would want to be something maybe again like you, unassuming. Maybe like I said, maybe like a bumblebee. I could stab him with my stinger. You know, I'm good at backing my ass up, so I could just go and, and take people out with my stinger. I mean, absolutely. I really think that this is something that that speaks to me. I think that when I think of you, Troy, I think Bumblebee. <laughs> when we <laughs> so when we do the sequel, you will be the what'd you say the Quoka? Well, the Quoka. I said the Quoka. I think it's because honestly, all I keep thinking of is Shardy Vincent's lovely Australian accent all through the course of this film. Isn't it beautiful in this film? Oh, it's elegant. Oh God, she's it's so elegant. lovely. She's amazing in this film. She's everything in this film. She's she's everything. And of course, you know, the, the whole concept of the film or the costume concept of the killers are animals. They're supposed to be a lamb, a tiger, and a fox. I don't know. I kind of thought all of the masks looked the same. <laughs> we'll get to that specific aspect of the movie. I love the mask though. I love I love the use of of the white masks and and the shadow play they did that was very similar in scenes to Halloween. But uh we have a big big undertaking with this film, Roger. We're talking the 2011 Ada Wingard directed slasher flick Your Next, which I actually saw in theaters. You know, I remember 2011 having some pretty good horror films that came out around that time, but this one it got into theaters, but it kind of underperformed. So it maybe went to the wayside a little sooner than it should have. And now I know a lot of people look at this film in high regards, but I'm talking about like, I really wish during its theatrical run that it would have done a little bit better at the box office because it deserved the success. It was in a rare opportunity for horror fans in the mid 2000s, early 2010s to see a actual balls to the wall slasher film on screen that played with every single slasher convention that we as slasher fans know and love. I I think though, that one thing to keep in mind with that is 
while this film didn't necessarily do gangbusters in, in its theatrical run, it was overall, I mean, it was made for a million dollars. I mean, that ain't that much money in the great scheme of things when you look at the budgets other people are working with these days. And it made close to... Th- 30 million it made i think just over 25 million so in that regard i mean it still definitely made profit i'm shocked there wasn't a follow-up in some way shape or form because the visuals of those masks that you mentioned are in my mind extremely marketable and this is something that in in a lot of ways could have gone a franchise route but i kind of appreciate it for being what it is as a standalone movie because it tells a very complete story in my mind um and it's held down by some really fun great performances um and i don't know if i necessarily would want to see another entry to this franchise without some of these people coming back because the the characters you're introduced to in this movie are really a, a big reason why this movie works as oh, well of as course. it does um you know you do get the the dysfunctional family on full display um in this film and there's the twist that comes out of you know it doesn't really come out of nowhere now watching the film again you know when you watch the film after seeing it the first time and the initial twist shocks you when you watch it again, there are several obvious clues as to what is happening, but you know, it takes that home invasion film that became popular in, like I said, the two thousands, like with the strangers and whatnot. And it really amps it up and combines it with a, with a beautifully orchestrated slasher, traditional slasher, convention all of the slasher conventions are there that we that i said that we know and love the brutal deaths the stalking sequences the 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 final girl everything that the killer reveals everything that we are accustomed to seeing in a great slasher film this has it and you know like i said it starts out one direction and it goes off completely different and i think that's really something that i appreciate the film for and i mean the cast the cast itself is a, a, a a combination of people who work together on a, a regular basis and you can really see the the chemistry the cast has together uh, the the love for the genre that they all share because again many of these actors and directors have worked on numerous films together and i think it shows and of course wingard adam wingard went on to make some great other genre films like your um the guest blair witch eh, which was meh but you know, it was cool to see him be, get, be entrusted with a budget and, and a, a franchise that had some respect and recognition behind it. And it stemmed from this film. Yeah. What's really refreshing for me here is you get like the a lot of these, this new young blood that's kind of now very up and coming uh, and prominent within the horror scene. I mean, you look at like having Ty West in this. Well, at this point, Ty West hadn't done a whole lot more beyond... Um, House of the Devil. I mean, this is 2011. So he really, like, you know, House of the Devil was probably his freshest project uh, at this point. And he was still becoming um, really well known amongst horror fans, but nowhere near where he is now having uh, X and Pearl and some of these other titles under his belt. He's really kind of blown up. And so, you know, seeing him and seeing A.J. Bowen, who is tied to so many great titles and we've seen him play so many fun roles he's always a standout anytime i see aj bowen in a film i know i'm going to enjoy his performance but having them alongside then an iconic performer like a barbara crompton is phenomenal i love that you get this classic scream queen just thrown into the mix but also given a role 
that I don't feel she would normally get, which is really refreshing to me. I'm glad she was given something to do in this film, even though, you know, I hadn't seen your next for quite a while. And I thought I remembered her being a little bit more prominent in the film than she really is. She's not in it that long, but she's great. You know, she's great at, like you said, playing something that we traditionally would not see her do. And that is, you know, a, a matriarch of a large family. And she gets some really emotional scenes to really sink her teeth into and really, again, kind of break free from that stereotypical blonde bimbo role that she even though she was great in like uh, reanimator and uh, chopping mall and all of those 80s films this really gave her something completely different to do and it was really cool for the filmmakers to take this you know scream queen from the 80s that was known for very specifically for very specific things that she would do as an actress and really giving her something more mature to do i mean i know she's older by 2011 but it was really cool to see her in this type of role well, yeah, and I think that one of the, my favorite aspects overall, at least with her character, is she's never sexualized once. You see a lot of these films, and they'll bring back these actresses, and they'll really kind of try to, like, milk this, like, sexuality out of them, even after they're, like, you know, in their 60s plus. And this character here specifically, I think she was, like, you know, probably closer to 50 around this time. I almost feel like they maybe tried to age her up a pinch, make her even more matronly than she actually is, you know? Um, which I appreciate, but um, I, I think that the fact that they let her just be like kind of this demure and elegant older character uh, and not try to take her for what she is as this 80s scream queen and, you know, try to make it something sexy, force it out of her. It didn't need it. The character felt very natural. The way she played it within this family structure uh, felt, I think, really elegant. And, and it was a, a solid performance for her. Um, so yeah, I think it was a really good choice for them to add her into this project because I just think she's great no matter what, but it's always nice to see her coming back and especially in some of these bigger titles. Like this is a film that at the end of the day did get a theatrical release. It had been a while since she had headlined anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Barbara Crampton, again, she was gr she's great in this. I, it, it was really cool to see her do something a little bit different. And I, what you had said where, you know, uh, normally filmmakers would take an actress like this and try to sexualize her even as an uh, as an older actress. And that's kind of what I was getting at when I said that it was cool for her to do something different than what we traditionally expect. Because in the 80s, she was very much known for the nudity and, and being you know, the, the, like I said, the topless blonde and whatnot in all of these films. So again, seeing this matriarch role, her take it on with such elegance uh, and grace and, and really make you feel for this character, even though she has minimal screen time was again, enchanting to watch. I love Barbara Crampton. She's great. Um, so give me more, give me more. And then she followed this movie up with a couple of the same actors with, uh, I think, maybe a few years later with what we are still here. Remember, have you seen that? I love it. Yeah. A couple of the it. actors yeah. from your next are also in, we are still here, but let's, let's, you know, we could gloat about Barbara Crampton all night long, but let's get into the film we were discussing. Like I said, we're discussing your next before we get into the film. We just do want to remind you of the Patreon. Woohoo. We got some great stuff up there. 19 full episodes. We're getting ready to do 20 this month will be 20 and we have all kinds of fun stuff. So check it out. Patreon.com slash dark night of this podcast. If you subscribe, you get access to all, all everything. 
depending on the depending All on right. the tier you pick. We have, I mean, but come on, for two two dollars a month is the lowest tier. Two dollars a month, you spend that more on God knows what. Yeah, I really think our our Patreon is at a point right now where I think you guys are going to be surprised at some of the quality of the material that's going to be dropping. Uh, Troy and I have been planning some of this stuff weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months out. And uh, I've been getting really excited to drop some of this. We did vow that this year, that 2023 is going to be kind of a really big push for us with Dark Knight of the Podcast. And I think you guys are going to see that in a lot of ways. We're going to be getting back to our regular scheduled program. We're going to be getting back to dropping regular content. And we're going going to be getting back to, honestly, making the Patreon a focus. So for those of you who have stood by us all this time, I think it's really going to pay off. We appreciate you. And for those of you who've been maybe like hanging on and not sure, trust me, the shit's going to be fucking golden. Isn't it going to be good, Troy? Well, I've said this several times. I think that a couple of our Patreon episodes are some of the best episodes we've ever done in terms of full length. We go there. I really do. I, no, I really do. We I do. really think there's a couple of Patreon episodes that I think are brilliant, hilarious. Obsessed is one of my favorites. I still know what you did last summer is a great episode. I think there's, you know, people are surprised. It's not like we're just like rushing through these Patreon episodes to throw them out. We put the same amount of time, effort, length. Good Lord, our last Patreon full-length episode was two hours and 20 minutes. So you're getting your your money's worth, and it also helps us quite a bit. So yeah, just give it give it a peek. Even if you sign up for a month and listen to, you know, you can even if you sign up for a month, you can cancel it. But listen to what we have and, and see if it's if if we're lying to you or not, which we would never do. We would never do. And yeah. one more thing I really want to touch on before we jump in. I know we're covering a lot of the bases, but we've really been active in our group recently, our official Facebook group. And uh, again, I just want to thank everybody who's been participating, but uh, polls and questionnaires, and there's going to be a lot more interaction with everybody. And we want you guys to participate. And a lot of you are doing that. So we appreciate those of you who have been keeping the conversation going. But a lot of this response is going to dictate a lot of the material to come from us moving forward. When we know that you guys really enjoy a certain episode, or you're really feeling a certain title, or maybe you disagree with us, but you want to voice it, knowing that you guys are jazzed up about certain episodes is definitely going to influence what comes from us moving forward as well. Wouldn't you agree, Troy? For sure. Absolutely. That's why we do it. It's great to see um, so many people participate and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. And then while we're at it, I might as well say, remember to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. With that said, we are getting into your next, which I mean, how, what better way to open a film than to, on a couple fucking aggressively in bed? <laughs> well, the, the man is aggressive. The girl is just kind of laying there. She is not enthused at all. He comes pretty quick. He's a premature ev- uh, ejaculator, wouldn't you say? Based off her facial expression, it sure uh, seems to be the way. Well, okay, you find out, and I'm like, girl, it's your own damn fault. She's supposed to be a college student. This man, it's Larry Fessenden, who went on to star with Barbara Crampton in We Are Still Here. He also produced and was in uh, Ty Wett's The House of the Devil. Tons of, of genre films under his belt. They give him this role. It was kind of cool to see him, him, him in this little tiny cameo. You know, he's fine he's he's kind of your typical looking middle-aged man wouldn't you say i mean there's nothing strikingly attractive about him in this particular film and this this young girl i mean she's portrayed as being quite sexy the little socks she has on and she's walking around with that flannel with her boobs hanging out she's very pretty and you're like girl don't be too disappointed because it's remember it's said later on in the film that oh he left his wife for this college student well, I mean, I guess that's what you get for being a little homewrecker is some lame, lame fucking because she is none too thrilled. Oh, 
she had no, I mean, let me say that this girl looks miserable. Like she, you literally, what you see going through her eyes, she's like, what decision did I make <laughs> that got me here? She looks so unhappy. And even the way it starts, like you hear like the, I, I really love some of the audio work and how it like intercuts with the visuals because it starts off with this kind of just ominous tone and you hear the screams and really quickly it kind of melts into, you know, what is you would think would be her pleasures, moans of joy, uh, but only to reveal that I really think she's just faking it. I think she just fucking realizes she made some grave errors getting with this this frump-a-dump of a man uh, because she does not seem happy. And she never looks happy for the few five seconds that she's on camera. <laughs> yeah, she gets up uh, to go downstairs when he decides he's going to take a shower. Uh, she wanders through the house again, boobs out. You know, everything that we would expect in a slasher film, I guess, just, you know, uh, she goes, makes herself a drink. There's this weird wind chime out outside that looks like it's just like forks and spoons tied together. I was like, okay, but it chimes and she hears it. So she turns and looks outside and um, then it cuts to him getting out of the shower. And in the meantime, she's put in this wonderful CD that plays through the entire film. <laughs> it is a specific song too. It's not even a CD. I wonder... Yeah, it's one song. It's supposed to be, a, it's on repeat. It says CDs on repeat, but it literally the CD has one song on it because it's the exact same song. It's playing every time anybody goes over to this house. Um, but she, you know, so when he comes down, the, the CD, the CD player is playing. He notices the, a drink that she had made. So he picks it up and takes a drink and immediately his eyes are drawn to written on the glass is the words, you're next in blood. And as he wanders over, he can see the opposite side of the window on the opposite side of the uh, opposite side of the house. He sees his dead girlfriend. And before he can really react immediately, he is dispatched by the killer in the animal mask with a machete and it's off screen. You know, you just see the machete raise and then blood splatter the wall. And then that's the opening scene. I mean, pretty, pretty brief attention catching in the sense that, Traditionally, think about like victims in, in slasher films, particularly opening of openings of slasher films. You generally would spend more time with the naked girl and she would be the first victim, even though in this film she is, but we don't see it. We don't even know what happens to her. It's like he he is the focal point of this opening scene, not her, which I thought was kind of an interesting twist on what we would normally expect yeah yeah it is a really brief sequence but you know what it really establishes for me right off the bat is the like the level of style um and overall like visually this film in general is just stunning to look at it's shot impeccably i think it's a beautiful film they really uh make that clear to you right away um and i do think while this sequence is brief they do a great job of establishing like the tone of the film there are moments that linger there are moments where you see things going on in the background that the, the focal characters do not. And they give us just a hint of it, just a taste of it in this opening scene. Um, I do f appreciate a movie that can literally have it's the title of the film uh, visually presented to us before the actual title comes up. It literally says, in blood, very stylistically written in blood. It says, you're next in big bloody letters. It looks fucking great. I gotta say that song, It's the title is uh, Looking for Magic by the Dwight Twilly Band. And it's an older track. It's from the 70s. 
I mean, it is one song, but I almost feel like it's like the the stereo is set on like playing the same track over, which kind of becomes like a a running kind of shtick, like you mentioned in the film. It comes on at really key times every time that you're in that location. It, it always goes off, and it's a really abrupt opening to the song uh, that really kind of gets you right into it, and it sets like the mood. There's something that something ominous that forms around that song. So I like that they use it as kind of a cue for something bad is going to happen multiple times throughout the course of the movie. After the opening scene, we cut to the car driving down the road with Aubrey and Paul. The, as we find out, this, these are the, the couple, the, the, the patriarch figures of this family that is gathering in this very remote, large mansion for a weekend dinner to celebrate their anniversary their 35th anniversary they drive past the house and this is kind of when you get the dialogue uh because barbara crampton plays aubrey she sees that these this the cars in front of this house and she's like oh he the neighbor he's back from you know he's he must be up here from vacation and her husband paul says no i think he moved here now because i heard he left his wife for a college student and she's like, oh, well, that's a shame. Well, then they pull up in front of this huge, beautiful mansion and they get out, they go inside. Before they go inside, he realizes that the door is unlocked. It's been unlocked. So they go into this beautiful house and uh, again, stunning. I love this location. I love this house. I think it provides a, a lot of great set pieces for the film. Definitely a effective location to set this film oh my god the, uh, the house is part of the reason this movie looks as big budget as it does again filmed for a million dollars wouldn't know it the location is stunning there's so much to it and whenever they do choose to stray away from that location the few other locations you do see ma- mainly the neighbor's house um also really cool location so this film does look really like rich and there's so many aspects of this house that you get to see and are utilized really really well over the course of the film yeah it it allows the film to definitely create some great like i said great set pieces great suspense there's a lot of little nooks and crannies that characters are able to hide in and, and whatnot so we get to see a lot of the house we see the basement we see the rooms upstairs, we definitely get a feel for how large this property is. And it just, like I said, it adds to the, um, the atmosphere of the film, knowing that this huge film, this huge house is out in the middle of nowhere and how isolated these characters are. Yeah, there's a neighbor, but the neighbor even seems like far down the road. So there's really nobody around after, you know, we get introduced to Paul and Aubrey. We do then get introduced to a uh, couple Aaron played by Sharni Vinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about okay. her for a second. Let's this Australian gem. Come on. Give her some roles. She, give her some roles. She was in Step Up 3D. And I always said this is a weird thing. I think Shawnee Vincent looks a lot like Brianna Evigan from Sorority Row. And Brianna Evigan was also in a Step Up movie. She was in the one with Channing Tatum. But these two look eerily similar. Oh, they, they go for a certain look with those goddamn step em ups uh they want a certain style they want a certain <laughs> lean kind of gal and shardy vincent certainly checks off all the boxes i gotta say though this is definitely i think the best she's ever looked this is a good look on her the bangs dig the bangs on shardy vincent she really creates a really strong character in aaron i mean we're going to be talking about this woman a lot tonight 
I think it's safe to say, honestly, the film belongs to her. And if it wasn't for her performance in this film, it might not be as memorable or as well received by horror fans as it has been because she really knocks this role out of the park. Um, and it's one of those things like you get introduced to, to her and Crispin played by the wonderful AJ Bowen, who was also in the house of the devil. He is the one that got to shoot poor Greta Gerwig while she was sitting in the cemetery, smoking her cigarette. And he was also in another Ty West. There, the connections here he was in Ty West, the sacrament, Lots of lot again. This is a group of, of filmmakers and a group of actors and whatnot that love to work with each other. So it was really, it's really cool to see that maybe this is perhaps around the time they got that start. But these they're such a charming couple. You know, she is giddy and and very like you think she's very reserved and sweet. Um, and they're just talking about the weekend and how rich his parents are. And he's like, well, yeah, I guess my dad retired from the KPG, which is apparently some weapons defense thing. And he's like, oh, that doesn't freak you out, does it? And she's like, no, as long as they have good booze. And he has to break it to her that they probably will not because his mother is on medication. So she is like, like I would be like, well, bitch, we're stopping and getting some booze then. If I'm spending the weekend with your family, I need some damn drinks. Where's the liquor store? I like her right from the start. Oh, yeah. She's... Uh, it's a, it's amazing to me that she manages to both be really fucking cool, super sweet and likable, and a fucking badass all in one. Like she checks off, like I said, all of the boxes, and across the the board, she's just so likable. She's such a likable individual. There, there's really nothing to, to dislike about her. Honestly, she seems so natural, so. I mean, as a character, very as an actress, very natural in this role, but as a character, so realistic, so uh, three-dimensional. And she is, like you said, I love the cool vibes that she gives us. Like, this is a girl that I would love to go like have a drink with. I would take her to a to one of the gay bars here in Vegas and be like, come on, let's go have let's go live it up. Because she does have that vibe to her. But again, also there is that sweetness that she is able to project from the first few frames that she's on screen where you're like, okay, yeah, this is a kind of the sweet kind of quiet uh, reserved girl that you have no idea really what she's capable of because there's some scenes coming up here with, between her and um, uh, Aubrey, Barbara Crampton's character that you can tell she is a little bit timid. She's a little bit shy. She's a little bit nervous about this whole weekend because what ends up happening is we cut then to, Back at the house, Aubrey and Paul are getting it ready because it looks like it hasn't really been visited in quite some time. Like the furniture is covered with sheets. So she's sweeping up and all of a sudden she hears a large bang above her and the chandelier shakes. And Paul comes up from the basement and she freaks out. She's like, Paul, there is someone in this house. We need to get out of here. And he's like, oh, you're just hearing things. She's like, no, I swear to God, there's someone in this house. She's freaked out. So he tells her. You know what? You go wait outside. I'll go upstairs with the, he grabs like a, what is it? A club or a fireplace poker goes upstairs to investigate. One thing I really appreciate up to this point about how the director is pacing this is that he's really feeding you a lot of information. These little moments between these characters that are, it's passed off really natural. Like the whole little bit, like you mentioned earlier in the car about them talking about the neighbor, Eric having the affair. You get this little bit of information about him. Um, in the car just now, 
with uh, Aaron and Crispin, where he fills her in about how her father was ju- uh, just retired from a company, KPG, a defense contractor with an insane severance package. And it's played off really naturally uh, between the two of them. And now you've got this little thing where, you know, they found the front door open. Now she's hearing noises upstairs. Uh, he goes and looks around. And just before he actually discovers what where this where we, the viewers, know this individual to be hiding, Crispin shows up and brings him back downstairs. They're giving you all of these great little details that are helping you get a better understanding of the situation while still keeping a lot of mystery about the whole thing. You don't know exactly what's going on, but you're definitely starting to fill in the blanks here and there. I really love the way they pace out how they give the viewer the information over the first opening of the film. It's a quite an effective little jump scare, too, because just as Paul is approaching this closet door, Crispin grabs him from behind and it's like it startles him. And Crispin's like, um, I hate to, you know, be like this right off the bat, but why is mom outside crying in the driveway? Um, and so they go down. He takes his dad downstairs. And as they're leaving, we get that cool, very traditional, like zoom in on the closet door as it slowly creaks open. So we know, yeah, fuck, there was somebody in there. And again, it's starting out as a very traditional home invasion style film, right? It's kind of, it's giving us that, oh, there, this family's, somebody's in their house, but it, it does not go that direction at all, which is, again, I, I love the fact that the film is able to combine several different subgenres of horror so seamlessly, not even subgenres of horror, but like subgenres of the slasher genre as well. And really give you something unique. Well, there's one thing that, that I've read, and I mean, I got it like Wikipedia, and I don't normally like to be like, I found this information, but I, this really caught my eye, and I think this is worth acknowledging, um, is the fact that uh, the director did state that one of his like influences for it uh, were Agatha Christie mysteries. And I can really see that in the, in the way this unfolds. Yeah, I totally can see that. Something like, and then there were none. You know, you just have this group of people in this isolated location. How An isolated house is what it is, and then there were none. And they're, they're getting killed off one by one. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that. I, I definitely get some, at times, even like gothic horror vibes to this film in the way it's shot and some of the, some of the scenes. But yeah, so they go outside to find Aubrey out there crying. She's very embarrassed because she feels like she is just overreacting. And we already know, you know, there was the line earlier that she's on medication. So we already know this woman must have some high strung issues. She seems, she always seems very like on the verge of like having a breakdown in this film. Uh, and when the shit hits the fan, boy, does she have a breakdown. But even when you're like first introduced to her, she seems very like on eggshells, jumpy, like, but she has a great reason to be her family just doesn't know that. So she's embarrassed. They get ready for bed. So Aaron and and Crispin are in bed. Again, there's this conversation. Conversation keeps going back to money. And I think it's interesting that they give Aaron like early on in the film, she like seems highly interested in the fact that Crispin's money or if Crispin's family has money because she mentions it in the car and then she mentions it again here. So I think it's almost like setting up this trickery with the audience to maybe think, okay, this girl is just a gold digger. She just wants this guy's money. Maybe she's doing something. We find out that, yeah, he bought this 
huge house as a retirement project, but really never has done anything with it. We also learned that it's the parents' 35th anniversary. They mention it th- that at this point. So um, just to kind of like layer on the sympathy and the sadness for what's about to happen to these people. <laughs> I mean, it is sad. It's sad what's about to happen because none of these people... Well, no, I take that back. I want to say none of these people are, are unlikable. No, many of them are unlikable. But I wouldn't say the parents are unlikable. They just have horrible children. Um, <laughs> but like, at least for the parents, like, I do watch this and I feel so bad that these two are kind of caught up in all of this because they seem like genuinely just like sweet middle-aged parents. It's really sad. Yeah, that's the that's the saddest aspect of this film, I think, is that the parents, they seem like great parents. They seem like they've given their children everything. And for the most part, uh, their children seem like they've been successful, right? You know, Crispin is a college professor. His brother that we the brothers that were introduced to, they seem very normal. Um, Drake, the one we get introduced to here soon, seems like he's well off. And in fact, he makes comments uh, to Crispin about, oh, Crispin, you've just been jealous of me. But they they seem like they've been raised well, I guess is my point. They've been provided for. So it makes everything happen when it does. It just, again, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's very sad. And it I think it makes a huge, 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 huge statement on the concept of greed or the theme of greed and what greed will push you to do. Uh, because un- this is not unheard of. Like, what happens in this film, not to maybe the extent, but this is not unheard of. It happens way more than we think. And so I think it was just an interesting dynamic to to introduce into the film. The next morning, uh, Crispin wakes up and goes downstairs and we find that he's downstairs with Crispin's brother, Drake, and his wife, Kelly, who... You know, right away when Crispin goes downstairs, there's kind of this weird relationship that's established between Crispin and Drake. Drake seems um, intolerable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he seems like he, yeah, like he likes to definitely jab at Crispin and knows what to say and to do to really get under his skin. And Crispin, you can tell, is just like, oh, this dude, because he's like fighting him like a kangaroo and making comments about his weight and stuff like that. And, you know, oh, don't kiss my wife. What are you doing? And so, again, you're getting introduced to this family dynamic that is starting to become the forefront of the film, really, as we get introduced to all these new family members. And for me, that's what really makes this film as enjoyable as it is. If this, if these characters were bland or like just like a group of teenagers thrown together in this situation, it wouldn't work for me. But because of this character dynamic and all of these little personal issues all these characters have, it causes you to get really invested really quickly. And even like the character of Drake, he's honestly, he's a fucking asshole. He has a superiority complex like crazy. It's not just with his brother. It's kind of with everybody. Because he also later on at the the dinner table, when he's having the conversation with the boyfriend, the filmmaker, he's really talking down to him. So he definitely has this like absurd superiority complex that just makes him horribly unlikable. But then there's uh, there's also like really well-handled undercurrent of humor that's consistently on display with a lot of these characters. And with Drake a lot, a lot of his material has like a kind of like a, a humorous tinge to it. Um, And so that makes him all the more likable. So even though he's kind of a horrible person, and again, a lot of these people are, they give him all these little details that make him very complex and in some way, strangely, like sympathetic at times. I still feel bad for him. 
Oh, I do too, particularly in that scene coming up in the basement. I really feel bad for him. And it's it's his performance pulls it off completely. This is when Aaron kind of wanders into the kitchen very meekly to ask Aubrey if she needs any help in the kitchen. And Aubrey's like, well, no. Oh, but I do need milk. Could you possibly go next door to the neighbors and ask him if he has any? So she agrees and she's happy that she's able to, you can tell in her face, she's happy she's able to do something to help, you know? So she's like, sure, sure, sure. So she goes outside and the guys are out there watching Paul paint something. I don't know what it is, a table or a dresser or something. Uh, And she takes a picture of them and they're like, oh, you want to come help? And she's like, no, your mom actually asked me to go to the neighbors to check on if he has any milk. And uh, Christmas like, oh, she did? She says yes. So she starts heading down the road. There is this conversation between Paul and Crispin that, again, very subtle stuff, but you can put a picture together that, again, the family dynamic seems definitely stressed or you know, now that these kids are adults, they are, are realizing maybe their parents are maybe a little bit overbearing or something because Paul asked Crispin about the fellowship. Crispin says, well, it really didn't happen. I haven't been published in a while, so they picked somebody else. And his dad just makes this little quip about, well, you know what? There are lots of people that aren't published that get the fellowship. I think it's to establish that there are little conflicts or little issues with, you know, between father, son, father, daughter, whatever. And so that allows then what happens at the end of the film to be maybe a little bit more understandable. But I, I was really wanting, to be honest with you, Roger, because this this film kicks into high gear pretty quickly. Um, there's a dinner scene coming up. And once the dinner scene happens, it kind of erupts into chaos and you don't really get a lot of relationship building after that particular scene. I would have liked to have uh, explored the family dynamic just a tad more in this film, especially between like the the parents and the kids. Particularly, I would say Crispin and Felix, who we don't get introduced to yet, but who's coming up because they pl- it plays such a strong part of how things develop, but you never really get a true sense of okay. What were the dynamics between this family that would cause, beyond greed, that would cause these kids to want to do this and to set this whole thing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I would love to see. I mean, if there's cut scenes for this film, I don't know, but let me see them. Because anything I can get that would develop these characters even further, I'll happily take it. I'm, I'm sold on the family. Like, everyone's great. Um, everyone plays their parts pretty well. Uh, it's just more for my own personal desire to, to explore a little further exactly what you said. What What is it that makes this family tick and why are they so willing to turn on each other? Speaking of that note, since, you know, obviously people who are listening to this review, I'm, I'm assuming have seen the film. I'm just going to jump ahead to one thing because I think it's worth talking about now. Um, one of my favorite things to, to view here uh, upon a revisiting are the little, tiny, intricate details and facial expressions in certain characters. I'll I'll play it vague. Certain characters who we know are tied to the end result. If you watch things back now, and you watch how certain characters are responding, the faces they're making, in the moment for a first-time viewing, you don't catch it because it seems to make sense in the moment. But going back and revisiting it, you see so many little details. I love it. 
Well, that is why. Okay, so can we stop? Because I don't, I, I don't think we should be cryptic. Because again, people that listen to this review should have seen the film. If you have not seen your next stop, go watch it before you continue. Obviously, we're going to spoil it. But I, I here we go. That's why I specifically pointed out when Crispin really gets that wide-eyed expression on his face when Aaron tells him she's going next door to ask the neighbor for milk because he knows what's next door, right? Oh, I love it. That chubby little baby angel face, as they call him. <laughs> and again, as you as as we mentioned or as I mentioned, yeah, the more the the repetitive viewings you catch on to so many little clues and so many things like you just pointed out little facial expressions little like oh that you would upon first vision you're not even gonna pay attention to but now knowing what you know his little like shocked oh she did and that look you know oh shit he's worried that she's gonna find out find what's next door and it's gonna put an end to this whole weekend prematurely there's one moment we didn't touch on too i want to i want to touch on this just because i think it's well executed um and i just thought of it just now when we're talking about this Earlier in the film, when you see Barbara Crampton get up in the middle of the night and get a glass of water when everyone's sleeping, there's this really brief moment. There's no dialogue. It's just her. You can tell that they were like, we're getting the most Barbara Crampton in this we possibly can (laughs) for the period of time she's in the movie. But she goes, she gets a glass of water and you do get the first visual of really what is one of these masks. You saw a hint of it earlier when Eric was killed, but in the reflection of the glass, you see one of the masks is definitely watching her. And I really think, again, another thing this film does a good job of is setting up the idea that these individuals have been watched longer than they are aware of. Like they are being watched for multiple days overall here at this location. And they have no idea. They have no fucking idea that is so creepy to me to know these people are just plotting their every move leading up to this big grand act that's about to happen here shortly. Yeah. I mean, the creep factor when you know that people are watching you and that they've been in your house and all of that, it's, yeah, it's unsettling. After the little conversation between uh, Crispin and his father, Drake goes up to his wife who just got out of the shower. And this is Kelly, probably the most underdeveloped character of the entire film, I think. I mean, she really has no point uh, except a pretty brutal cool death scene that i love but like i feel like this is the character that you get to know the least she has the least to do uh except annoy me in the scene because you know he's um he comes up behind her while she's getting dressed in the mirror and the first thing she says is where'd your brother find that girl and you're like, bitch, why are you picking? Who don't even don't start, don't start picking on Sharni Vincent. You're barking up the wrong tree, especially with the gays. We love Sharni Vincent. You're not. You, you better stop. But she says, um, she says she's like, she's annoying, and that accent is so jarring. Oh my god, I hate this broad so much. I, two lines I hate her. I want to smack her. But she's she's good in the role. I mean, she it's not the actress; it's just the character. But you you want to dislike this character because one thing again with the character of Drake, you can tell he's pretty much in an, in an unhappy marriage, you know, with a woman who just, she won't acknowledge his advances. He tries to take her bra off. She's like, stop it. She's, she's, I'm not feeling exactly. this right now. I would be saying that to that tall glass of water. Oh my oh, goodness. He, handsome. Oh, he's, uh, he's adorable. He's adorable. I love Joe Swanberg. He looks, he kind of reminds me of Michael C. Hall. I can see that. I can see that, mm-hmm. but you you can see again, like when you talk about this character having a sympathetic angle, um, where it makes you kind of easy to, for you to sympathize with him, despite his being an asshole. 
um, you can tell that there's like hurt in his eyes. Like he feels really uh, shot down by her and she's so cold, man. She's such a cold character. And you can also tell that he, it, this is a, a very normal thing because she sees and she's like, oh, don't give me that look again. Well, after this little encounter with this cold broad, Aaron shows up at the neighbor's house and she's knocking on the door. Of course, there's no answer. The only thing that's playing is that damn CD again. Playing on, you see it like start over from scratch again. So you get a full run through of the song for like the third time already. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so nobody answers, so she turns to leave, and then we get the camera kind of making a pan into the window and, and, and zooming in, and we see that the dead man is sitting on the couch watching TV. I love this whole, like, the fact that they come back here multiple times, and nobody knows that he's dead until finally this final moment. Um, I like that they keep revisiting this location. It doesn't make that opening kill feel like a throwaway moment. It very much ties into the overall storyline. Yeah, totally. Uh, after this, Amy shows up with her boyfriend Tariq played by Ty West. Amy's actually played by uh Amy Simmons. Simmons, how do you how do you say her last name? But she's also and again, she's in the sacrament, the Ty West. Isn't film. she in um the uh, is it the Pet Cemetery remake? Yes. She's she's the mom, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's also in the sacrament, which also has AJ Boeing, Joe Swanberg, directed by Ty West. So again, who's who of Ty West films, apparently. And I like her in this role. She's she it's it's a brief role, but she is she plays it great. She's kind of like the annoying, always constantly happy, opt- just giddy, laughing sister who call, who just loves everybody. And Tariq is again Ty West. He's very like mellow, chill, complete opposites. Like he doesn't have a lot to do in the film either. But like their dynamic, she's the outgoing one. He's very quiet and reserved. We also get Felix, played by uh, Nicholas Tucci. Right? Rest in peace. He did pass away. Rest in peace. Yeah, sad. Handsome in this. Handsome. And his girlfriend, Z, who right away does not look like she wants to be there and is not the friendliest broad in the Oh, Z looks so, like, unapproachable. Like, if I saw her in a, like, a crowd, I would be uncomfortable. I wouldn't go up to her or say anything to her because she has anger in her eyes she always looks like she's plotting which she is like the thing is the the first thing you think about this character when you see her other than look at that bob that that really intense black bob you're like god this broad is just like someone i can't trust and she is in fact that she's a bad person let's just get it out there she's one of the villains and she ain't trying to hide it yeah which was an interesting choice right you know considering the film has this twist that you think you know, you would think the the filmmakers would want to keep as under wraps as possible, but then you introduce this character who definitely, yeah, right away gives off uh, bad vibes. Like she doesn't even like really say hi to the mom or try to shake her hand or try to do anything. She just says, "Oh, hi." Takes a puff of her cigarette, and then like when Aaron introduces herself, she's like, "Hi, I'm Aaron." And she's like, "I know." They're like, why are you here? Well, we know why she's there, but I mean, very unlikable from the, from the get go. You know who I could have used a little bit more time with honestly would have been, um, well, Tariq. I mean, like I get the purpose of this character first to go. I don't need a ton with them, but I would have loved to have seen a few moments of everyone kind of just like amongst each other, settling into the house. The family just got there. I would love to have seen a scene with him and Aaron, for example, Uh, Just because these two are like, you know, outsiders looking in. They're not married into the family or anything like that. So 
Um, just maybe a moment to develop his character a little bit more would have would have served a lot for me because he literally doesn't do anything until the little conversation he has at the dinner table, and then after that he's dead. Um, and also Amy, like the character of Amy, because she is obnoxiously giddy, but she's very different from her brothers. And I would love to have seen a little bit more of the relationship between her and her parents and so forth because it's clear that she's doted on. Uh, give me a little bit more of that so I feel that impact even more when the inevitable happens to her, you know? Yeah. They could have spent a little bit more time or given us a little bit. And I'm not saying we need, you know, 30 more minutes of these characters interacting, but just a little something because yeah, the Amy character, the Tariq character and the Kelly characters all seem very underdeveloped. Yeah. I would have just liked to have seen a little bit more of the character dynamic. Like I said, uh, they go inside, they make the introductions. And then, I mean, it, it literally cuts right to this dinner scene. That is the catapult for everything that happens from this point forward. You know, you get Paul, the, the, the father, leading the group or the, the guests in prayer. Some of them, especially Z, does not look thrilled. She's sniggering the whole time. They start to eat. And this is when Drake asks Tyreek what he does for a living. And Tariq says he's a filmmaker. And he even, Roger, had one of his documentaries play at the Cleveland Underground Film Festival. That's not real. I know. That's, but whatever. I, I, I want to see. I'm looking it up right now. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you. If that's if that's real, then I'm a bad Clevelander. Underground. I'm, listeners, I'm, I'm typing it as we speak. It does lead. Uh, it does lead Drake to make that comment. He's like, "What's an underground film festival? Do they play the films underground?" <laughs> and Tariq's like, "No, they play them above ground, but it's just for specific types of films." And then freaking Drake launches into this thing about you should make commercials. Commercials are the artistic art form of the future for filmmakers, and why don't you to consider it? And you can tell Tariq is like, "Oh fuck you, dude." As a filmmaker, did this not feel like? crazy relatable to you like yeah, this dialogue talk- i've heard this before <laughs> oh yeah yeah being being talked down to or like yeah people suggesting you do a specific type of film or whatever you know like like somebody's oh you should do a comedy well comedy is not really my thing so right. thank you for the suggestion but no thanks but this is that drag guy really like just trying to and he's even doing it in kind of a you could tell it's it's very jabby oh com- condescending and jabby yeah. yeah oh what's an underground film festival that they show the films underground well then he sees aaron and um uh, crispin having some snuggles and laughs together and this is when he asks aaron if she's still in school and aaron's like well yeah i have just a year left and he says then what were you a student of are you a student of crispin's and she's like i was i'm not anymore and crispin chimes in and says yeah she was my TA, but we called it off because I thought that it was not appropriate. And under his breath, as he's taking a drink of his wine, Drake says, yeah, it's a little unprofessional. Oh, this launches into such a fun sequence, though. Oh, oh my God. God. It's a huge argument. <laughs> but it's so it's well these done. Two, these two going at it. Drake saying, you're just jealous of me. You've always and he calls him calls him fat again. <laughs> I love how he keeps bringing up his weight and the way Crispin responds to it. He's so affected by it. Like I've. I've been the fat relative before. I've been so self like like insecure about my body. So I know exactly that kind of like relationship these two brothers have. And uh, yeah, it's so natural between the two of them. This arguing, like this had to be like some improv moments here because it's just so off the cuff and it plays so naturally. Um, I really love the fight sequence and I fucking love what it builds up to. 
Well, I love everyone has a different level of of um, response, right? Some of them are really uncomfortable. You get the mom yelling at her husband to stop the stop these boys, put, stop these boys, put an end to this. You get Z and and Felix kind of thinking it's funny, or at least Z does. Felix, you can tell he's like, "Fuck, not this again." Amy is like freaked out, but in this moment, Tariq sees something outside, and as everyone is preoccupied and their attention is focused on the argument, he gets up. Uh, to go to the window and look out. And all we hear him say is, what the fuck is that? And all of a sudden, we hit something hits the glass. Everyone's still arguing. You see glass fly to the floor. You see Tariq fly back. And everyone's, you know, slowly their attention starts to go to him because Aaron sees the glass on the floor. Uh, and then they notice that Tariq, when he turns around, has an arrow sticking out of his fucking forehead. Um, this moment, this reveal of what happens is so fucking well played. You've got this big, like, bellowing argument between these two guys. Everyone's chiming in. Everyone's so distracted. Tariq's off doing his own thing. And when the arrow comes through the glass, it doesn't make, like, a huge noise. It makes, like, a little, like, a slight breaking noise that only Aaron notices at first. So when everyone slowly starts realizing what happens, it's, like, gradually one after another. Like, you really start to see um, Drake's face, like, start to like realize that Tariq is an arrow sticking out of his head and it's like comedically long that he stands there with his arrow sticking out of his head but it's so fucking good the sequence is so well done that I don't give a fuck because as soon as he turns around he's like ah and he drops dead chaos erupts and it is beautiful oh yeah this is such a great scene because all of a sudden arrows just start flying through these windows, just shattering them, shooting into the wall, shooting into into uh, pottery, everything. And people are freaking the fuck out, you know, trying to get under tables. Immediately, Aaron's the one. She gets right under the table. She pulls people down with her. Uh, the mother is a, is a, at this point, is already a, a mess. And as Drake goes to grab her to push her away from the window, he gets hit in the back with this arrow that literally stays in this poor man's back the entire rest of the film. Oh my God. Um, the poor man. I know. I'm like, ow, oh, are you? Oh. Uh, but I mean, arrows coming in, arrows are coming in. Then Aaron's like, grab the chair. We have to get to the other room. She's taking charge, which is your first sign that this girl can, can pretty, can perform under pressure but she gets everyone to, to use a chair as a shield to run in front of the windows and everyone goes she's the last one to go and the arrow hits her chair comes through almost hits her but everyone gets to uh gets into the other room just as an arrow hits the family photo and, and shatters that yeah it's a very much a um a visual representation of what's about to come. I think, I, I think that was very well played. Um, the, the, the pacing of the sequence phenomenal. They use a lot of really great hectic, fast cuts, a lot of handheld. There's a lot of motion to the footage with some really well-placed brief moments of slow motion. If you notice cut in intersplice that it really like adds to this growing, like almost it's like the feeling of your heartbeat, like as you're realizing just the, panic that's setting in it's that moment of shock that you feel where you can't fucking move for a moment it feels like these slow motion images almost capture that moment of like it like takes your breath away for a second because there really is so much chaos it really does like on a first viewing take your breath away i remember seeing this in theaters as well troy and when this scene hit i was just my nails were digging in to the the arms of the chair i mean i was just blown away by it um because it, it hits out of nowhere and all of a sudden, 
it's moving fucking freight train plowing forward for the majority of the rest of the film. You got to catch your breath. And again, it does something that we're not, the audience is not expecting The film is setting it up to be a, 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 Hey, there's somebody in this house. that's going to start killing off this family one by one. We don't expect that these villains are going to launch an all out full assault on in the entire family during this dinner scene. We're not expecting that. So when it happens, I mean, you're use the word chaos, but this film is a, the scene is a beautiful depiction of chaos and everyone's reaction seems so realistic. Poor Barbara Crampton is losing it. They get into the other room. They take out their cell phones. Nobody has a cell phone uh, signal. The dad is like, I had a cell phone signal earlier today. And this is when Felix makes a comment. Oh, well, they must be using cell phone jammers. They're illegal, but you can get them off Amazon for $30. Felix has so much dialogue scattered throughout the course of the film that makes it very obvious that he is the one behind this. But again, where you're at in the movie upon first viewing, like I didn't even think to suspect him. I thought like a lot of this was just making sense in the chaos of all of it because he's presented as kind of like the nerdy one, the outcast. Definitely like I would say like out of all the brothers, the least accomplished it appears or so it seems So it just seems like something that would make sense that this individual would know. They really did a good job giving the right lines to the right people in this film. You know what I mean? Um, But like, I still, even though I know what I know now, when I watch it back, there's so many things that are pointing in his direction that I just didn't catch on to the first time I watched it. Even this next thing coming up, he's the one that suggests that someone goes and runs for help. Oh, it comes up multiple times. It's always him or Z. And, and, you know, Aaron's like, no, we just need to stay here. And he's like, no, we need to get out of this house. Somebody needs to go get help. Who's the fastest? Who's the fastest? And they have this little argument over who's the fastest. And there's going to get another, uh, another jab with uh, Drake and uh, Crispin about his weight. <laughs> you can't run you fast or whatever yeah. he says. Like, yeah, like, it's funny. And somebody's like, and somebody's like, Drake's the fastest. And Kelly's like, he has an arrow in the back, you motherfucker. And, and poor fucking Amy's <laughs> like, over there. I'm fastest. She's like, nobody nobody ever gives me credit for anything. <laughs> oh my gosh, she's like breaking down over it. Like literally her wanting to run is 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 selfish on her behalf. But it also I think is coming from a good place because she genuinely is like, I will do this. And so Amy is the one, this cute little blonde in this pink frilly top is the one that's gonna make a run for safety. She's like, I can run three. I run three miles in twenty five minutes. And they're like, <laughs> the, the husband, the dad's like, Oh, we 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 have faith in you, honey. Felix is like, Well, you're gonna have to sprint out. If you sprint out, they're not expecting it. So she, there's this whole little moment where she takes her high heels off. She takes her earrings off. She even cracks her neck. And they open the door, and Felix is like, Just sprint out there as fast as you can. <laughs> so it's in slow motion too. So this. This little broad starts sprinting as fast as she can. She's, she has a huge head start before she gets out the door and it's slow motion and everyone's looking in awe at her go. And we're like, what's going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to see her get out. She, not, not one foot out of the fucking front door. She hits her neck, hits a wire that is stretched across the front door, throws her back down. And we get a really gnarly shot of the throat slit. It's one of the best throat cuts I've ever seen. It looks gross. Oh my god! And 
everyone is like, oh my God, they pull her inside and she's can't, I mean, she's obviously holding her neck, blood spurting everywhere. This causes poor Barbara Crampton to freak out even more and nobody can do anything. They have to they just have to look on in disbelief as this poor girl bleeds out. All she wanted to do was show everybody she could run. Oh my God. No, yeah, it really, I got to say that one of the greatest strengths that this film possesses, and it possesses many, is it really capitalizes on the art of surprise uh shock and surprise in the sense that it it always kinds of goes for something you don't expect and because of that i would say it always hits like i don't really think there's a choice this movie makes overall when it comes to killing off certain characters when you don't anticipate it that doesn't pay off for me there are several people that die in a certain order here that i wouldn't really anticipate it or expect it and i really think that because of that it kept me on my toes for the whole course of the movie. There's so much element of surprise over the course of this film. And this right here, this whole wire sequence, I mean, you knew something was going to happen. I really thought that she was just going to be run outside, just boom, get hit by an arrow and drop. But that trip wire, like I did not expect that. And it is a great payoff. It really makes for a shocking kill at a really sad moment. You're right. When the family has to just stand there and watch as this poor girl bleeds to death. I remember being completely shocked by this. Like I was like, damn, I was not expecting that at all. And again, as now, now upon multiple viewings, seeing Felix so gung ho about, you have to sprint out, you have to sprint out, you have to get a house, sorry, you have to sprint out of this house. I mean, it just, it's, it's morbid. It's morbid. You know, it's sick. Yeah, it is. So Aaron, again, she runs upstairs uh, away from everyone. Crispin goes after and asks her what she's doing. She's like, we have to make sure all the doors and windows are locked. She's also trying to text 911. She says, sometimes if you text 911, they'll get the message. Even if your phone line is down, she goes back downstairs and again, takes charge. She starts locking the window. She's reassuring them that they're all going to make it. Felix is, is still trying to suggest that someone else needs to go for help. And this is at this moment, Aubrey is a hysterical mess. Like she can't even function. So Paul, her husband takes her upstairs to put her in the bed upstairs. Um, I don't know about this decision. I mean, I know she's hysterical and everything, but like, you don't know what's going on. You don't know who's where your family has just been attacked by multiple bow and arrows. I would don't think I would take this poor woman up and put her in a bed by herself. I would at least keep her downstairs. Alas, they do. And <laughs> what happens to this poor woman is she's grieving in bed for her daughter. I mean, she is full-fledged sobbing in this bed. And it's a really effective shot because we linger on her sobbing to the point where it's almost uncomfortable. Like we're, we're like, oh, we don't want to see this anymore. When all of a sudden the, the camera kind of pans up over the bed and you see Someone casually climb out from under the bed and you're like, oh, fuck, because you expect Barbara Crampton to last a lot longer than she does in this film. But nope, the animal emerges with that white mask and she turns to notice and, and notices him as he raises the machete and hacks her with it. This shot here of her laying in the bed, because it's first it starts with a wide shot. And if you look really close, you can see the hand start to come out. Um, and it is a chilling image because she, yeah, she's completely unaware. And just not only that, I mean, she's 
overwhelmed with grief. I mean, she's truly at her weakest. And so she rolls over and she sees him and there's like a moment where she screams, but she can't even defend herself. And again, what I was saying earlier, it's it's the element of surprise in that, again, this film makes a decision here to off a character who normally when you think of a character like this, you know, the mother figure, at least she's going to make it further. She's She's definitely like the weakest most fragile character and for that you'd think that she would be protected to a certain extent but they kill her off violently i mean the shot of her body being revealed with the the machete just sticking out of her head it's so gory with your necks written up beside her and everything it's such a great reveal but it's a sad death yeah, it really is. And I, again, I expected her to last longer, but it also now lets the audience know that, hey, all cards are off the table. Nobody is safe in this film. It gives it that kind of unpredictable factor. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Unpredictable is the right word, I would say. Yeah. Aaron downstairs is frantically locking the windows when there is a, 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 a scare when the killer busts through the window and grabs her arm. And tries to pull her and she's able to stab him in the arm with a steak knife that she has. I love the first time that any of them make contact with her. She fucking shows him what's what. She, without hesitation, digs this knife into this man's arm. And he just like, he did, he does not see it coming. He starts screaming and she right away goes to run for another fucking weapon. And he manages to get away. But they know pretty quick that Aaron is is not someone to fuck around with. She makes it pretty clear. And even the people in the house, there are several moments where they're like, how did you know how to do this? I don't get it. How do you know how to do this? I love the facial expressions that some of these characters make when Aaron just busts something out and proves herself super fucking capable. And they're just like blown away by it. Like, yes, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love some, yeah, especially the facial specs. Uh, Especially the facial expressions of Z and Felix in some of these scenes. You can tell they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, did not anticipate this. <laughs> so they go, the father runs upstairs because they did hear, I think they, a couple of them heard the scream of the mother. So the father runs upstairs to go into the bedroom. And this is when they find her and we see the reveal of the body. Yes, her laying in bed, machete sticking out of her head with your next written in bloody letters on the wall. It's it's a gory fucking image, man. It is. It is. And it's, again, very disturbing. And then again, the, the year next coming into place. So now it's connecting the first, the opening kill to, to what's going on in, in now, right? So everyone kind of runs downstairs. Paul freaks out. Kelly's up there. She covers the body with a sheet and she hears something. And so she slowly crouches down to look under the bed and she pulls the thing up. There's nothing there, but all of a sudden the face emerges on the other side of the bed and she freaks the fuck out to the point. This bitch runs out the front door and is gone. <laughs> I love this moment. I fucking love it. I, I, first of all, I kudos to that killer for just staying under that bed. Like who would have thought that he would just stick in that room that whole time. Again, there's so much chaos going on that these killers are kind of able just to like keep themselves hidden in the shadows for so long. Um, it's it's kind of impressive actually that like nobody thinks to like look further, but everyone's so caught up in the shock of everything they just aren't really being proactive, you know. And and so I think the killers are taking advantage of it. Um, but this moment where you know she she hears the floorboard creak, she looks under the bed, and for a moment you just see darkness, and then that mask just 
jolts up into shot. I remember that being in the trailers. I remember that being all over the place. And it's a fucking great fucking shot. It is so effective. And it really is like one of the first images I think of when I think of this movie. Yeah. So she, she darts out of the house. Drake goes after her. And as he's running out the, the wire that cut Amy's throat actually catches the, the arrow on his back. And he's like, Oh fuck. This is the moment he pulls the arrow out and he faints. So now he's out of commission for much of up, the upcoming film, right? But there's that humor about this movie that I love. Like, it's a dark fucking humor. But first of all, he runs out and his fucking arrow hits that wire. And he's like, ow! And you, like, you feel it. Like, it's that's a moment that makes my butthole clench. Like, you can tell that hurts so bad. But then he fucking pulls the arrow out because he's so medicated. And he just, like, looks at it for a second. And when you see how much blood is on the arrow, how deep it was in him. He, I think he just passes out from the sheer, sheer shock of it. You know, it's it's got this pinch of humor to it that plays really well. So Crispin now says he is going to make a run for her to get help. Um, and Aaron kind of tells him, please don't go. We need to stay here. And he says, I will be fine. I'm just going to go to the cars and see, you know, if I can find anything that will help us. So she gives him a meat cleaver for protection. In the meantime, Kelly has made it all the way to the neighbor's house where she's at the glass porch, the back porch, pounding on the door. She sees someone sitting in the couch and he's not responding and the music's blaring. She's like, open the fucking door. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And all of a sudden she backs up because she sees that there's somebody, the reflection behind her of the animal killer. And she turns around and this man punches this woman violently. Violently. (laughs) Yes. It's so it looks so painful. It causing her oh to, my God. causing her to fly back through the glass of the sliding glass door. This girl is fucked up. I cannot imagine the force of a punch it must take to send someone through a goddamn sliding glass door. Those are not thin sheets of glass to begin with, mind you. Those are meant to withhold storms, major uh, major weather events, and so forth. It's not like she's going through like a, a sheet glass. She's going through a thick-ass glass window. So uh, that had to be fucking painful. The, the, the sheer force of that punch to send her through that glass door, crazy. She should be dead already. Well, you see how fucked up she is when she's crawled around on the floor. She can, she's spitting out blood. Her face is covered in blood. She can barely move. She's crawling towards the man. And when she gets there, we see the reveal. We get the reveal of him being dead, which we knew she didn't. Obviously she's looking up at him and she sees the big old uh, chunk missing out of his head. And she of course screams. And this is when the lamb guy or the, whatever the animal it is, grabs her, picks her up and throws her through a fucking glass table and you're like this poor woman and then this has to be the most brutal death in this entire film i think as she's on the floor just writhing in pain and agony he takes his foot and puts it against her head and then with his arm his other arm he takes the axe and swings it down on the other side of her head and you just hear it bury it in oh it's so disgusting. You even see a, a quick shot of um, from like the side of her where the force of the axe hits. Like you don't see the actual axe go into the head, but you see the side of her head like jolt for a second. 
Um, and it's a really just like brutal shot in the sense of the force of it. Cause you know that this like ax is just like digging in there and then they follow it up with a great reveal shot of the ax just like buried into the, the literally the side, like of her temple. And it's just like halfway into her cheek and it's just so fucking nasty. Oh my God. It's such a violent kill. So brutal. So brutal. And then to top it off, he, he, the animal killer sits on the couch to view his handiwork. I love that shot. He wants to take it all in. Yeah, it's cool. So back at the the main house, Crispin comes back in to tell them that he really didn't see anyone outside, but he says he's going back outside to go a little bit farther down the road. The cars can't take any of the cars, so he's just going to hike down the road. He tells Aaron, listen, everything's going to be fine. Um, I'm going to go for help. And she's like, please, please, please don't go. And he kisses her and, and whatnot. So he he takes off. He's gone. So that just leaves, you know, the 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 few remaining survivors, Drake, you know, Aaron and Felix and Z, there at this house. So Drake has passed out. So they want to move him out of the way. So they they pull his body to somewhere a little bit more safer. So he's against a wall, kind of in the the living room area behind the curtains. Aaron asks, which room is the safest? And Felix like, oh, the basement. And Aaron right away is like, no, that is not the safest room. All they would have to do is open the basement door, throw some gasoline down, light a match, shut the door and lock it, and we would be dead. Again, it's another moment where like you can now looking back, you can tell that they were like, that's exactly what our plan was. How did she know? Like, how is she so aware? How is she so on top of this shit? Uh, another another fine moment where she just kind of proves how capable and ahead of the game she is. Yeah. So she runs into the kitchen to get them some weapons. And as she comes back in the room, she has a knife. She has some knife. She's walking back in the room. She's like, hey, I got you guys some weapons. When all of a sudden, that fucking lamb killer from the house busts through the window not just bust through the window. He actually throws Kelly's body into the window as well. So her body is like there revealed kind of hanging into the window. Aaron falls to the ground and he comes into the, the house and lumbers towards her. And he, he actually raises the ax and swings it down. And she's able to roll all the way just in time before it hits her head and it embeds into the floor. And she takes this opportunity to knee him in the nuts and then takes this meat tenderizer and bashes him in the knee with it. And not only that, she gets up and bashes this motherfucker's head in with this meat tenderizer. As Z and Felix look on in, in sheer horror at what's unfolding in front of their eyes. Best scene in the film, I would say. Everything about this scene, I think, is just glorious. The slow motion shots of... The, the of the attacker coming through the window um the shot of his like foot stepping down from the window frame as she rolls over there's some really great slow motion and it breaks the moment she rolls out of the way kicks him in the balls and bam she grabs the mallet she's up she hits him in the fucking leg he drops he doesn't even know what the fuck's going on she starts just bash him in the head and he's he's letting out this scream that you normally don't hear men in horror movies scream like this he is just screaming at the top of his fucking lungs as she beats his goddamn brains in and she's standing there panting covered in blood like the fucking badass she is and this is the moment like you've known up to this point that she's capable but this is the moment you're like holy fuck i can't wait to see what this bitch is going to do to these fuckers 
she lifts up the mask and she she's like, do any of you know him? And Felix is like, uh, well, honestly, it's kind of hard to tell now. And she's like, throws the head back down on the floor. She's like, yeah, thanks for the help too. And he's like, well, it looks like you had it pretty handled pretty well. <laughs> and then he's like, he says something very odd in the moment. He's like, don't worry, Crispin will be okay. He's a tough guy. And she says, uh, no, he's not, but thanks. And then she's like, well, where's your dad? Cuts to dad upstairs with the fireplace poker. He's looking for you know, the killer because he wants to kill this motherfucker for killing his wife. So as he's going to room to room, he gets into the main bedroom and he opens the closet and he finds this. This is really creepy. This would creep me the fuck out. He finds a blanket, pillow, some water bottles, and then a water bottle full of piss. And at that same moment, as he's like examining these items, Felix comes up behind him and the dad has come to the realization. He's like, this man, somebody has been in this house. They have been in our house watching us. Felix is like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, well, I found all the stuff in this closet. These people have been hunting our family and he's backing up away from Felix at this moment. He backs into the opening of the, the hallway behind them. And in a split second, one of those animals comes out and slits this poor man's throat wide open. Oh my God. And the moment of him like having the realization as he's putting the pieces of, to, of it together, he doesn't even have a moment to like turn around and come face to face with the attacker. He literally like without even anticipating it has his throat cut and he's immediately like, Oh shit. Like, you know, he's putting his hand over the cut and waddling around, knocking over lamps. And finally he like drops to the ground. And there's this one brief moment before he dies, because clearly he's going to fucking die. It's horribly violent, where his eyes connect with Felix as Felix is just kind of standing over him watching. And I feel like you know deep down that the last thing this guy realizes before he dies is that his son is involved with this, which gives this whole moment this kind of heavy-weighted feeling. Um, I don't think they could have really introduced the twist any better than the shock of this attack this unexpected attack out of nowhere because they're talking to him just like, you know, any other moment they're just talking with him and all of a sudden the guy dies. And not only that, but you find out that they're in on it. It's it's such a great reveal. Yeah. There's this moment also right after the, this man gets his throat slit and he takes a while to die as you would, you know, it's not going to be instantaneous, but there's this moment where he reaches for his son for comfort. And what does Felix do? He pulls away and pushes him like in disgust. And that is like the split moment you realize, okay, because any normal child, wouldn't you comfort your parent, even though you knew that they were, they were going to die. There was no way they were going to live. Wouldn't you want to comfort them in their last moment? You certainly wouldn't push them away in disgust. Uh, And that is the moment right then that you realize, oh fuck. And the dad collapses to the floor and dies and the animal killer is standing there. And there's this moment they stare at each other. And then Felix finally says, really, you had to do that in front of me. I love the removal of the headphones after that line. The fact that this guy is listening to music and not even paying attention just shows how how sick these fuckers are. Brutally murdering people and just listening. Because he takes his headphones out. He's like, I'm sorry, are you speaking? <laughs> and Z is like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And Felix says, well, I'm going to go clean up. Aaron's downstairs when this other animal killer comes into the living room with a crossbow and this killer, this lamb killer, I think it is finds the body on the floor and freaks the fuck out. 
freaks the fuck out. So you know, okay, he's mad because his friend got killed, which we find out it's his brother, actually. But this guy's flipping tables over, scream, screaming, howling. When Aaron is, you know, hiding, she accidentally makes a noise, and the killer goes to the door and sees her, and, and she's behind the the basement door. And this killer starts to axe the door down at her and she gets this fabulous scream when the axe busts through the door at the same time fucking drake has woken up from his fainting spell earlier and just waters into the room casually he's just like hey yeah he he doesn't even notice who he's saying it to at first and then he has this moment where he realizes it's in fact you know a killer i love this whole little moment of her in that closet though because when she senses the killer's coming she jumps into the closet she's got the meat mallet in her one hand but the reason she makes the noise is she's working she's reaching for like a screwdriver out of a toolbox because keep in mind there's been work going on around the house so it makes sense there's all these tools all around and so she's like ready to defend herself but then yeah this whole moment with the axe coming through the door um does give her like such a great like uh, moment of fear because up to this point she's been super capable of defending herself she really hasn't had a chance to scream so it gives her this great little moment but then he shows up and it again with like that comedic tinge that this character has this moment is funny and he immediately drops to the floor uh and and the the attacker turns his attention to him long enough for her to just bust out screaming again at the top of her fucking lungs as she digs the screwdriver into his back yeah and i love you know i love Drake's reaction, but then I love the killer's reaction because what does this killer do? He gets the fuck out of there. He literally runs out the front door. So they shut the door behind him and lock it. <laughs> I love that because you typically would never, you, you don't see a killer be chased off. They're usually going to stay and fight, but this dude's like, fuck this, I'm out of here. And this is around the point for me where it started, like, you know, the, the movie for a bit had a home invasion kind of feel to it. And it also has like a lot of slasher elements to the overall film there's lots of slasher elements but now as we're starting to get to know these killers a lot of these movies don't really allow us time to get to know the 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 individuals behind the mask and when we do they're always larger than life characters but we're starting to realize these are very much human beings just like anyone else in this house they have emotional connections to each other two of them we find out like you said are siblings um and they have like relationships and they have feelings and they have thoughts and to introduce that into a movie like this is is a unique take you don't get to see that that often until like the final unmasking if anything when you get a motive i have that same note i feel like it's very refreshing it's a very refreshing um depiction of of villains that are they're human like you said they have emotions they feel pain i love the fact that there's no like moment where she's just stabbed the shit out of a of one of these guys and there's no way in reality this person would still be alive but they jump up for one final scare you don't get that these these villains feel pain they die when they're supposed to die i mean it's it is a really refreshing non-cliched depiction of of villains and again i think it's, it's one of the other things that this film does so well that you just really don't see very often is it does give us this glimpse into what it would be like to be in this situation as the killer you know because this guy like i said he gets stabbed and he's he gets the hell out of there so felix and z come downstairs and they're like oh we heard noises so we just stayed upstairs these two pussies uh, but we get why they why they're the way they are but you're like th- th- these two are so like <sighs> worthless you know, it's like at any moment, well, well, we'll, we'll get there, but I'm just like, these, these characters are something else. They, they also tell her that the dad is okay. They're like, yeah, dad's okay. He just had to lay down and Aaron's like, okay, shit, we need to go 
find weapons in the basement. So they go down the basement. Aaron gets some hammer, some nails, some boards. And she takes Z upstairs to make these very much home alone type booby traps, which is basically two by fours that she's hammering these large nails through to put them in front of the windows and in front of the doors so that they will get stepped on if someone tries to enter. I was like, very smart. She must have definitely watched some home alone. But at this, at this moment, Z is like, how do you know all this stuff? And turns out Aaron reveals that she grew up in a survivalist camp. This could have been an, a, a, a twist, Troy, that like I think if delivered any other way, could have been like a um a little bit too much for the average viewer to palette. Uh, because it's so kind of out of nowhere. But because she's done such a good job of just kicking ass this whole time, and this character is so fucking likable, and because of the way she delivers this dialogue, I'm like, I fucking buy it a hundred percent. Plus, she's got that Australian accent, so it's just like it, I completely buy it. I don't question it at all. I'm sure there are people that do that kind of shit, and seeing how she's handling herself, I fucking believe it. <laughs> yeah, and what I what I like about it is it's not like they go into great detail. It's not like she has this huge backstory. She basically tells uh, Z, I was a survival. I was I lived the first 12 years of my life in a survivalist camp. I was born to a dad who was super paranoid that the world was going to end or that we were going to run out of resources. So we moved into the survivalist camp. After that, we moved to the Australian outback in the middle of nowhere. And then ultimately ended up moving to the, to the U.S. to pursue school. And all Z can be is like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Downstairs, you have Drake and Felix. Drake asks about Crispin. He's like, we need to go upstairs and find him, and I need to find Kelly. And this is when Felix, almost giddily, I think, it, uh, there's a very like eagerness for Felix to tell Drake that his wife is dead. Did you catch that? Like He's almost giddy about it. He's almost getting off on the fact that, oh, I get to tell my brother his wife's dead. Because he's not like sugarcoating it at all. He's like, and he's very almost excited. He's like, uh, Kelly's dead. You didn't know that? Yeah, she's dead. Her body's up there on the living room floor. She's dead. Yeah, I can see that. And I also feel like, uh, you know, if you look earlier, you had a moment where um, he asked Aaron, you know, about Kelly. And she's like, oh. Uh, I don't know, you know, she's gone or whatever. She like blew it off. Uh, understandably so, she's trying to maintain calm. And in this moment, when when they're downstairs in the basement, and it comes up. He's like, "Oh, you don't, you don't know? Yeah, she's dead." Like, there's no thought or consideration of how he'll respond in this situation. I think a lot of it, though, is when you look at like the other characters or at least the other family members within the household. There's this level of like decorum between them. There's this level of um. Uh, upper class like pretentiousness and how they handle themselves and and he just doesn't have that you know uh, his character felix's character is definitely like the fuck up of the family and even without saying it you get it just from the way he plays it and i i'll be honest i feel like his performance is the weakest in the film there's a lot of moments that feel very wooden a lot of bits of dialogue that feel very dialogue-y to me. But I still very much grasp that this character is is definitely like the the low end of the totem pole in this family. And the fact that he'd be running alongside someone like Z to begin with, it, it helps portray that. The way they costume him compared to the rest of the characters. You just definitely get like a, a kind of a fuck-up vibe from him. 
So I think that plays into this moment as well. He's just not even thoughtful to think of how he's communicating to his brother. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't matter. He's not thoughtful, but I also just felt like there was a level of of giddiness and, and excitement that he's able to tell his brother his wife is dead because he knows how his brother's going to react. Because I really feel at this point, Felix knows that this night is not going anywhere near the way it should, which then leads to what he does next. I think he knew it was going to be his one last major like jab he could take at his brother before his brother died because Drake starts to freak out. He's screaming. He says, Drake, shut up, shut up, Felix, quit talking. And all of a sudden Felix just fucking stabs him in the stomach. Not once repeatedly. And I feel like this scene, again, we talk about the mother scene being heartbreaking, heartbreaking, which it is, but think about like, Forget about the fact that Drake has been portrayed as being like the asshole of the family for most of the film. When he gets stabbed the first time, the look that he that comes across his face and as Felix keeps stabbing him, it is heartbreaking. Like you are really getting the grasp of the the, the seriousness of this guy is realizing his brother is killing him purposely. And then Felix even makes the comment, why won't you die? This isn't easy for me. It's tough, man. Yeah. By the end of the stabbing, poor Drake literally has probably a dozen screwdrivers and and sharp objects embedded in his, his stomach. And like the last thing he has to see is that his brother did this to him and the realization that his brother also killed his parents. Yeah, it, it's tough to watch this moment. And one thing I really appreciated watching it again this time is because, you know, this is a a violent kill when you think of it overall, what happens. He literally stabs about eight to ten, like, household tools and appliances into his brother's chest and torso. But they choose to not show much of the penetration at all, which could feel like they're skimping out. But this movie gives you so much that I really don't think that anything feels like a skimp or a cheaped out. Um, I feel like it seems very intentional because it's very much focusing and concentrating on Drake's face and Felix's face as he's realizing that no matter what he does, his brother's still standing there. And he even says, he's like, why won't you die already? This is already hard enough for me. Oh my God. It's such a selfish line for him to say, but I, I love that they focus on their facial expressions until finally, after it's all said and done is, is he's standing there, he looks down and you see all the, the the things sticking out of him. And there are are just an array of random tools just sticking out of his body. It looks so fucking painful. Uh, there's this moment back upstairs when Aaron is lean, kneeling down on the floor to put some more boards down. And Z picks up one of the boards that has all the nails in it, raises it above her. But Aaron turns around just in time. So she has to pretend she was just handing it to her. At this moment, Aaron decides she's going to go back upstairs to look for the dad. Z's like, I can, you know, I can go if you want me to. And Aaron's like, no, no, I'll go. You can stay down here. So she goes upstairs. She finds the dad dead on the floor and she kneels down next to him when immediately one of the killers in the animal masks comes into the room and attacks her and she pulls a Sally Hardesty and jumps out the second story fucking window. (laughs) I, I had the exact same note. She fucking Sally Hardesty's her ass out that window. And you know what? Like, girl, at this point, I get it. You're trapped in this fucking room. You got to do whatever you can to survive. She gets beat the fuck up, too. Like, she is also not a character who can avoid injury. She 
lands on the ground and she rolls over to reveal a chunk of glass sticking out that of her is leg. The biggest fucking chunk of glass I've ever seen in my life. As she's pulling it out, I was just wincing. Oh my god. I mean god. this fucking thing has to be twelve inches long as she's pulling How it out. How did it not hit an artery Ugh, or something? I don't know. I don't know. Um so she yeah, she runs into the to the woods beyond the house and is there trying to hide and be protected when all of a sudden one of those animals comes at her with a crossbow. And starts to shoot at her. She runs back into the house, luckily, and he gets gets back into a closet to hide and is able to tourniquet her leg. The killer that's been following her comes into the into the window, and I like the fact that he sees, like, he looks in and he sees the, the um, stretch of wood with the nails on it, but he does not see the one that's like closest to the window. So he steps in all confidently and steps right on the one of the fucking nails. Oh, this moment where he steps on this nail and anything to do with the nail board, it looks so painful. It literally, again, butthole clenching pain. Like you see his foot go down. He steps in. You see the nail go through the boot. It's a big, it's a big nail. I mean, this is not like a teeny little nail. This is a big fucking nail. And then later in a moment, you know, here in a few moments, you're going to see a moment where he pulls the nail out of his foot and that looks fucking painful. Blood just pouring out of his boot. Felix hears the scream from this dude and he's like, tells the other guy that's upstairs with them, the killer. He's like, can you go downstairs and check on that? That's what I'm paying you for. So the, the, uh, the third animal killer goes downstairs and this is a, a, a disgusting moment that makes you hate Z even more because she literally tries to get uh, Felix to fuck her next to his dead mom. She's like, I want you to fuck me next to your dead mom. Yeah, she does. She, she says it twice. He's like, what did you just say? Why would you say something like that? And she's like, oh, you never want to do anything interesting. And he says, um, I would not say that's correct. <laughs> and then she's like, then fuck me next to your dead mom. And then he's like, this conversation's fucking over, which I get it. And then he goes ahead and storms out of the room as you would if someone asked you to you know, fuck him next to your dead mom. And she like lays back <laughs> pouting. She's like, oh, I just wanted to be fucked on this bed. And then she looks over and she like takes the mother's ring, <laughs> looks at it and steals it. She's such a dirty bitch. I hate her. Oh, so Felix goes downstairs and this is when he makes a grand mistake because he's so worked up and he sees that one of the killers that got his the nail through his foot has pulled his boot off. His foot is splattering blood everywhere. Felix is like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't do that. Put that back on. You're going to leave your DNA behind. And the, the killer is like, um, I will clean it up. And Felix is like, this is this night is not going as, as planned. You guys have been nothing but fuck ups. And do you realize I had to kill my brother? In the meantime, Aaron is in the closet, like in the next room, listening to all of this unfold. And as Felix mentions that he had to kill his brother, the other one's like, oh, yeah, well, you see that guy right there, the dead one? That's my brother. Felix is like, well, I, I didn't know. I knew you guys served together, but I didn't know you were brothers. And he looks over and he's like, God, she really fucked him up, didn't she? And this is when the guy like grabs him by the throat and starts to choke Felix and and. The killer's like, I tell me what I why I shouldn't fucking kill you right now. And we kind of realize then this whole plan was for money because Felix offers him double the amount that that he was going to pay them. He's like, it's only fair that you should get your brother. Sure, I'll give you 400000 and then another 200000 once I get the inheritance. The dude's like, you guys better get this money that you're offering us. Well, what happens? Aaron's cell phone goes off. One goes, the, the, the killer, the one goes to look for her and 
she's able to punch him in the face and escape and run outside. Then she gets back in through the kitchen window. And they, again, this killer's following her. He goes to the window that she just climbed in and looks in. And she immediately stabs him in the face with a knife, killing him. So now she's off two of these motherfuckers. And this is when you get the iconic image of her grabbing his axe and standing in the lighted window, looking down at his dead body. It's such a great shot. Such a great shot. It's worth noting that the the reason her phone went off and uh, police. was the police. Yeah, because she had texted for help and it finally picked it up. Um, so they're now on their way too. So this is just another level of, of, of higher stakes applied to this because everyone knows that they're on a time frame now. Uh, we get this iconic moment also of her rigging this booby trap uh, with the axe. So she ties it above the door and ties the rope to the to the door handle so that when the door opens, the axe is going to swing down on whoever comes in. Frank Z and the last animal, I think it's the bear, are out on the road because they don't know that Aaron ran back into the house. Uh, and the killer animal decides that he's going to go back into the house to look for her and that Felix and Z need to go down the road because she cannot get away. And Felix is like, well, give me your crossbow then. We need a weapon. Oh, my God. Like, these fuckers got to use a goddamn crossbow. Well, that's what he says. He's like, do you even know how to use a crossbow? And Felix's response is, yeah, you push a button and an arrow flies out. (laughs) And you can tell the guy just looks at him like, oh, you fucking idiot. Just chuckles and, and walks back towards the house. And you actually do get a moment here where Felix refers to this guy by the name Tom. So yeah. this character even goes, you know, as far as getting a first name. So uh, we're learning more about these individuals and, and and why they were hired into this and so forth. And each one does have a very kind of like separate defined personality. Like this guy, you can tell he doesn't really give two shits. Uh, he seems unfazed, whereas the last one, the one that was just killed off um, with the knife to the forehead uh was uh really like hot tempered and like emotional. emotional yeah so yeah they, each one has kind of their own uh own personality which i really like but now it's the it's like yeah the bear or the fox whatever that is he's like the last one standing and so he's going to go in and he's going to go take care of business well aaron is not going to let that happen because she's hatched a plan she goes to the basement and she's busting out all of the bulbs so that the basement is is dark and then she sets up a camera to flash so that when um the bear comes downstairs wielding his machete he's following this flash this camera flash and he finally gets to the source of it and he just sees it's their camera there on the floor and she i mean she immediately comes out and starts beating the shit out of him with what is it a, a hatchet I think it's like a log. Isn't it just a fucking log she's beating? I don't know, but she beats the fuck out of him. He doesn't even get a chance to fight back. That's what I love about this. I really like this sequence, but I do feel like this is, for some reason, this is the one sequence for me that I would say feels like it maybe is a pinch lacking or nonsensical. Maybe it's the volume of of flashes that go off. Like I know there's timers on cameras. They established she has the camera earlier when she took the photo of the of the father with the kids. So that all makes sense, but it's like you literally it's like 25 flashes just going off. Bing, bang, boom. And yeah, it really is just this guy walking down there to his death without any means of defending himself whatsoever. Um, for this to be the last one of the three mass killers, I felt like he went out the weakest uh, overall. 
I would agree with that. I felt like there should have been a little bit more of a struggle between these two, considering he is the last of the three main villains. I would have liked to see a, a, a fight, a confrontation, not him literally being blinded by the camera as it flashes in his eyes so that she can come out and just beat him and kill him. And that's that. I feel like the scene that follows this, though, definitely makes up for it. But you are right. I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more here. It, it does seem a little rushed and, and, and maybe lazy. Yeah, yeah. It seems like they had only so much more time to finish the movie, and this was like the last scene. That's what it feels like to me. It's a cool fucking scene, but in a movie filled with exceptionally phenomenal sequences, it just doesn't impress me as much as everything else going on around it. Um, but it's still fun. And I also want to say one thing that we haven't even really touched on with this, but the, uh, you know, this is a scene that has some really great audio work. Not a lot of score in this scene, but really great audio. And consistently, this whole movie's had some really awesome audio work uh, beginning to end, but also some really fucking great score. I mean, the score that plays over the sequence of her setting up that axe earlier that you mentioned, it goes to this really great kind of 80s synth sound for a moment that I fucking love. I mean, there is some score in this film that's really worth acknowledging. I just wanted to point that out, too. Yeah, no, I was actually going to mention that particular score that you're talking about because it plays a couple times in the film. And it reminded me almost of like It Follows with that heavy synth. And it it seems kind of jarring at first because it's so out of place with the rest of the film and the, the score of the rest of the film. But it really, really works. Uh, I really like it. She goes back upstairs after dispatching this last, you know, animal killer. And as she's walking, you know, Felix is outside and he shoots her or he thinks he shoots her with the crossbow from outside. So you don't really see it hit her, but he doesn't know that. So she falls to the ground. They go inside. She's not there. Uh, So Z has the crossbow and she's like, I'm going to go find her. So she, you know, has the crossbow pointed and she goes into the kitchen and Aaron immediately hits her with a pan. And th- this final f- whole fight scene is so just balls to the walls fun. Oh my God. The fight scene here is one of my favorite final battles ever. I mean, it's the fact that it's two on one, first of all, that really like just blows me away. And she just is fucking dealing it to them. And they get they get on her a few times, but overall, she kicks their fucking asses. I mean, she kicks two people's asses at once. It's quite impressive. Oh yeah. I mean she's beaten she knocks the um she knocks the crossbow out of Z's hand and then they they're struggling having this, you know, punching each other. Felix comes in and she grabs the pot of water that was on the stove and throws it at him. And I love this. He's like, it's not even hot, you dumb bitch, before he fucking slips slips in it and falls to the floor. Oh, yeah. I love it. There's so many, even in this final moment, there's these little um, kind of comedic like winks to the audience almost. And I love that moment because you had seen the water boiling earlier uh, and you were expecting her to use it. And then this moment, it, it still gets the best of him. And like, she keeps just getting fucking her ass kicked, but she just keeps coming back for more and they just can't keep up. And so this final moment with the, with the blender, I mean, the cherry on top of this fucking delicious Sunday, the fact it goes to like this extreme with this character's kill is so satisfying. I can't even express it. Like watching this guy get a goddamn blender affixed to his head and plugged in and watching it just go off is truly one of the the greatest uh, demise moments to a villain I can think of in horror history. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. You get this moment where Aaron is on top of Zeke choking her and Felix is able to get off the floor and take a knife and he plunges it into her shoulder all the way to the hilt. And, you know, she screams, of course, and reacts. And yeah, she grabs the blender, the glass blender, um, the glass part of the blender, bashes him in the head with it. Yeah. And then takes the bottom part that has the blades in it and literally stabs it into his head and plugs it in. It is one of the best death scenes. Uh, I would say of all time almost. I mean, it's so just the execution of it. And yeah, it could not happen to a better character, and like right? The froth and the pink foam coming down, like running down his face with the blood. It's just like, it doesn't cut away. It just keeps showing it. It's great. It's great. And then she looks over at Z and Z is just like, oh fuck, this bitch is crazy. Like, and Z really can't even do anything to defend herself. I love it. No, she can't because Aaron pulls the knife out of her back, immediately stabs it right through the top of Z's head. So those, this Aaron bitch has single-handedly killed off every single villain easily. You know, I mean, yeah, these two put up a fight, but considering it was two to one, come on, they could have got the best of her anytime. They also could have killed her anytime as well. They were, that was their dumb decision. You know, I mean, they were with this character for a majority of the film when, when, when Crispin was out looking for help, supposedly. They could have killed her anytime. In fact, Z almost did, but she chickened out. She could have still hit her with that, you know? So, yeah, they, they, got, they got what they deserve for messing with this, you know, badass chick that you don't want to fuck with because she grew up in a survivalist camp. Never fuck with someone who's grown up in a survivalist compound, ever. They will absolutely kill you without hesitation yeah well at the same time his phone rings and aaron picks it up and answers it but she doesn't say anything and this is kind of twist number two three and and what it is is we hear crispin on the other line and he is apologizing for not being able to help he says i'm so sorry i'm not able to help i'm not supposed to be there you know me i'm not a violent person I couldn't be there when it actually happened. And of course she's listening. He's like, I can hear you breathing. Will you say something? And then finally he's like, you know what, uh, Felix, it's cold. I'm coming inside. So he literally walks into the house on the phone still. He's like, Felix, where are you? And Aaron just slowly walks out of the kitchen holding the phone. This moment is so fucking satisfying. I love his facial expression when he enters the house and he sees the volume of destruction like he is like holy shit i mean there's bodies everywhere it's wild um and and his facial expression is exactly what my facial expression would have been in the same situation and then he sees her step out from the kitchen and she is bloodied and beaten and bruised but she looks so fucking pissed her facial expression throughout this whole sequence this whole moment girl i get it I feel it. I feel it completely, Aaron. Yeah. And she, she says to him, I can't believe you were in on this. And then he launches into this, like trying to save his ass. Uh, he, she, he says to her, you know how broke we are. Her response is you would have killed me. And he's like, no, no, no. That was actually part of the plan was for you not to die because we needed somebody not part of the family to have witnessed what had happened that these random crazy people killed our neighbors and, and attacked our family. So you very much needed to be alive. And she looks at him and she's like, yeah, but you knew it was a possibility I could be killed. He's like, no, 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 honey. And then he, he says, you know what? Think about it. We're going to be rich. 
I'm, I'm sorry things got out of control. I'll make it up to you. But we're going to be rich and maybe we can get engaged because now I'm going to be the sole inheritor of the state. Oh, this whole bit is so fucking manipulative. He even starts kind of turning it on her a little bit, being like, you know, I told you I'd come back, didn't I? Like he he, he goes through all of these different like phases of like guilt tripping her, uh, trying to apologize to her, uh, stating that it's going to be beneficial to them in some way. Like he literally goes for every possible, reaches for every fucking branch he can to hold on, you know. And and she even says to him, well, he he asks her, he's like, "Where is Felix?" And she's like, "I stuck a blender on his head and I killed him," like like <laughs> like without hesitation. And then he's like, "Well, where's Z?" And she's like, "I killed her too," like without blinking. And he's really just trying to sell her on the fact that this is going to somehow work out. Uh, but I dare say that she's not buying into it. Oh, she doesn't buy any of it. He also tries to be like, oh, you know, you don't think of your student loans and think of that waitressing job. You won't have to do that anymore. I'll give you $500,000 right away, right when I get the inheritance. And he gets close to her and he's like, you know, I love you. I came back for you. And without fucking hesitation and without any like warning, she stabs that motherfucker in the neck with that fucking steak knife. Oh God, I love it. And he looks up at her as he's as blood's pouring out of the wound. He's like, "Why?" And she's like, "Why the fuck not?" <laughs> Why the fuck not? I love. And she stabs him in the fucking eyeball. Um, and as she pulls the eye, the, you know, she as she kind of releases the the knife after she stabs him in the eye. All of a sudden, she's shot. And falls to the ground and then it reveals there's a police officer because, yes, as you mentioned before, the noise that her cell phone made when it went off was the police responding. So they're there now. This police officer shoots her thinking that she, you know, was killing maliciously when she's not. And so the police officer shoots her. In the, it's in the shoulder. It's very clear that it's in the upper shoulder. Uh, so she's not dead. He runs out, radios in, then he has a multiple homicide and he goes back to try to get in the house and he's... T- I mean, what's he going to do? He's going to come in the front door. And so he's opening the front door. And as he's opening, she's on the floor screaming, no, don't. And he opens the door. The axe comes swinging down and screen goes black and your neck splatters and blood onto the screen. And that is the end of the fucking movie is the end credits roll in really creative ways. I like the end credits to this film a lot. Yeah, you see like every character and how they like met their demise. I really enjoy it. I also love how bumbling this this police officer is. Like he shoots her in the shoulder, it whips over to him and he's like looking through the window like, oh my God. Like he's just like taking it in, all the violence around him. Uh, he's got this handle, like kind of handlebar mustache that makes him look really goofy. Though he's still kind of cute. I'm not going to lie. Um, but you know exactly what's coming. Like you remember her setting up that, that trap and there's no way they're not going to use that fucking grand trap that she set up. So it really is, truthfully, probably the most satisfying way they could have ended this film. Especially with that big blood splatter saying you're next against the black as it ends. You know, that final thing we see, that big splatter saying you're next. Such a great way to take the movie out. Yeah, great ending. It leaves you thinking where we can only pray and hope that Aaron made it, you know, and that they realize that she was not the killer, that she was just acting in self-defense. Uh, that's my hope is she's living happily ever after now, because I don't think the bullet from the cop killed her. So Aaron, badass, one of the most badass final girls in cinema history. 
She gets the job done. She's resourceful. She's fucking brutal. She can kick ass. She ain't afraid to kick ass. She ain't afraid to stick blenders on heads. She is just the epitome of a strong, strong final girl. If you're a killer, this is one you do not want to go up against. You do not. You do not want to fuck up against with her at all because she will kill you without hesitation. Um, And I was thinking about this because it's almost set up to make it seem like she's going to be taking the blame for all this. But, like, thank God she set up that photo shoot in the basement, which blatantly captured her killing that that mass killer. And there's just so much, I think, in her favor. Oh, yeah. There'd uh, be so much uh, DNA. Oh, my God. Yeah. The guy, the one killer blood all over the floor. I mean, it's going to be obvious from any ev- investigator with half a brain that she was not involved and she was acting in self-defense. So, yes, Aaron lives happily ever after. You're next. One of the most entertaining you know, slasher hybrid films to come out in quite some time. I, I love the film. I think it's ex- it's exquisitely paced. You never get bored. Uh, yeah, we can nitpick. Like I said earlier, I would like to have seen some a little bit more family dynamics. So it made the, I, I think that giving a little bit more family dynamic or family backstory could have made the, the reveal, the twist a little bit more impactful, but even with that, I th- this film does so much stuff right. Uh, it's just a, a blast to watch from start to finish. I, I do just adore this film. I, I was wondering if I was going to like it as much this time around as I did when I first saw it. And I, 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 I really, really do. This is a great film. Yes, give Sharni Vincent more work. But then also this helped launch Ty West into being able to make other films. Like I think he did The Sacrament shortly after this and The Innkeepers. Uh, and now, I mean, he is a prominent, prominent figure in the horror community. I would say, with the success of S, uh, with the success of X and Pearl, I mean, he's going to definitely become a, a a name in horror, a prominent name that is going to be talked about for for quite some time. So I'm really ex- excited to see where his filmmaking career goes, and he was involved in this, and it's just amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really super, super impressive to see what's come from. Um a lot of the people involved with this project. But yeah, when it comes to Sharni Vincent, I mean, put her in more things. And I will say, I'm not necessarily aching for a, a, a sequel to this movie. I think it's a great standalone, but if they ever did, I hope they would approach it in a way that just made it more about her than anything and made it uh, a storyline that kind of follows her arc only selfishly because I want to see more from her. I think yeah. she's so hypnotizing on camera. I honestly, I don't have any desire to see a sequel to this, even if it did follow her, just because I feel like, I feel like this concept was so excellently executed that I, I, you know, I don't want to see another you're next. I love Sharni. Give her something else to do. Come on, Ty West. You're, you're hot now. Put her in Maxine. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait for Maxine with three X's. I know. Put her in that. You know, oh my God. Can you imagine her as, as a, as a, as a madam or a porn Oh actress? God, with that body. She's so beautiful. You know what else I'm excited for? This weekend, I'm excited for fucking Megan. Currently 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I saw that. I saw that. Because I haven't been this excited for a movie in a very long fucking time. 
by our next review, we, you know, you should have, you'll, you'll have seen it and we can maybe talk about it if I go see it this weekend, because it is on my agenda. If I can get, if I can get to the theater, I would definitely want to check it out. Give me a good killer doll movie. Anytime. I don't give a shit. If people want to say it looks like a copycat of a child's play. I don't give a fuck. This is a killer fucking doll. It looks like one of the Olsen twins. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. What, what else? What other setup are you going to give a killer doll? There's only so many directions I know. we can take. Them. I know people. The, oh yeah. They're going to complain. A killer doll movie is that it's a killer doll what what more do you i want a doll that kills that's a killer yeah. doll movie this megan looks terrifying dead eyes i mean the, the doll itself looks terrifying like that fucking thing is creepy as fuck that oh little dance it does She's no so fucking talented way. i watched an interview with the small british child that plays megan like that does all like the actual acting underneath the mask and i'm like god imagine having that credit to your name imagine aging being like 24 and someone's like hey what you know what do you do what credits do you have i played megan in the movie megan spelled with a three i would i would hand this girl all the roles so i think her 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 fame and stardom is already set up for her because this movie looks so fucking fun and i cannot get enough of that fucking doll well, lots to look forward to in horror for 2023. Lots of great stuff coming out. Uh, there's a plethora of horror coming out in 2023. And you also have to look forward to Dark Knight of the Podcast uh, making a big impact in 2023. So keep listening. Uh, again, rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Uh, share the podcast. If you guys, if you enjoy us, share share the podcast with friends. Share it on social media. We need, Let's get some, some new listeners. We want some new blood, literally. But yeah, just, you know, it'd be a little nice thing for you to do. Uh, other than that, I'm going to briefly, briefly, because we're over two hours again, which is typical for us, but briefly mention our next episode, Roger. Oh, go for it. I'm so excited. I know. So it's a film that I have wanted to cover since I started the podcast, to be honest with you. Um, it is a 80s slasher film that has always, always for some reason and i know guys i know it's not a great film i know that but i've always had this i don't know connection to this film it's almost like a comfort film i think it has to do with the vhs vhs box art being so like brutally eye-catching as a child and then always wanting to rent it and my mom would not rent it because she thought the box art was too violent and then i finally got to see it and uh, I was very disappointed. And then I realized as I got older that I saw the R version and not the version that was actually uncut. And the uncut version is one of the most brutally graphic films that come out of the eighties. And of course I'm talking about the mutilator. Uh, again, a film, I know it's not good, but it does have that wonderful fall break theme song. We're going on a fall break has some great kills, including a fishing gaff to the vagina. Um, it is just atmospheric as fuck, uh, but we'll talk a lot about it. And coincidentally, it's going to be our 90th ep episode. And coincidentally, as we're recording this day, the trailer for Mutilator 2 was just released. Oh, yes, it was. And I got to say, uh, that's it looks interesting. That seems to be the overall consensus. I, I, was, I was expecting... You know, if you're going to make a sequel to a film that has kind of cult class status, cult classic status, so many years later, I mean, we're talking almost 40 years later. Uh, I was a little disappointed. It looks very cheap. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, but we'll see. I could be pleasantly surprised. I was like waiting for the moments in the, the trailer of the Media Layer 2 to capture like what made the first one become a cult classic. And that was like the gore, you know, the, the grittiness. You do not, you don't see any of that in this trailer. So I'm wondering if they were just very carefully careful in their editing of this trailer, not to show anything. I do like the concept of behind it. I do like the fact that it's like meta. And these murders are taking place over a, a weekend where they're having a screening of the first film and like real actors from the first film are there playing themselves and then a killer. St- I like that concept a lot. It's just this trailer did not grab me as I was really expecting because the mutilator is one of my favorite 80 slasher fl- flicks, but we will be covering that. So we're excited for that. We'll have some new episodes on Patreon for our patrons. So yeah, exciting stuff. And then there our final two picks for January are even more Ooh, I can't wait for that. Yeah, it's going to be a fun fucking month. Oh my god, I can't wait. Yeah, they're they're. I I like the fact that they're a little out of the box. They're not the, what you would normally yeah. expect from us. Yeah, I like to so, think for sure. So get ready for something fresh and new. Get ready. <laughs> but with that, guys, we want to again thank you as always for tuning in, and uh, until next week when we do some mutilating by sword, by pick, by axe. Bye bye. What a tag night. Line. <laughs> what a podcast. Good night. <laughs>